Section 5 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Chapters 7 to 9. Chapter 7. The city of Ypres was the capital of our battlefields from the beginning to the end of the war, and the ground on which it stands, whether a new city rises there or its remnants of ruins stay as memorial of dreadful things, will be forever haunted by the spirit of those men of ours who pass through its gates to fight in the fields beyond or to fall within its ramparts. I went through Ypres so many times in early days and late days of the war that I think I could find my way about it blindfolded even now. I saw it first in March of 1915, before the battle when the Germans first used poison gas and bombarded its choking people and French and British soldiers until the city fell into a chaos of masonry. On that first visit I found it scarred by shell-fire, and its great cloth hall was roofless and licked out by the flame of burning timbers. But most of the buildings were still standing, and the shops were busy with customers in khaki, and in the Grand Place, where many small booths served by women and girls who sold picture postcards and Flemish lace and fancy cakes and soap to British soldiers sauntering about without a thought of what might happen here in this city, so close to the enemy's lines, so close to his guns. I had tea in a bun shop, crowded with young officers, who were served by two Flemish girls, buxom, smiling, glad of all the English money they were making. A few weeks later, the devil came to Ypres. The first sign of his work was when a mass of French soldiers and colored troops and English, Irish, Scottish, and Canadian soldiers came staggering through the Lille and Menin gates with panic in their look and some foul spell upon them. They were gasping for breath, vomiting, falling into unconsciousness, and as they lay their lungs were struggling desperately against some stifling thing. A whitish cloud crept up to the gates of Ypres with a sweet smell of violets, and women and girls smelled it, and then gasped and lurched as they ran and fell. It was after that when shells came in hurricane flights over Ypres, smashing the houses and setting them on fire until they toppled and fell inside themselves. Hundreds of civilians hid in their cellars, and many were buried there. Others crawled into a big drain pipe. There were wounded women and children among them, and a young French interpreter, the Baron de Rosen, who tried to help them, and they stayed there three days and nights, in their vomit and excrement and blood, until the bombardment ceased. Ypres was a city of ruin, with a red fire in its heart, where the cloth hall and cathedral smoldered below their broken arches and high ribs of masonry that had been their buttresses and towers. When I went there two months later, I saw Ypres as it stood through the years of war that followed, changing only in the disintegration of its ruin, as broken walls became more broken, and fallen houses were raked into smaller fragments by new bombardments, for there was never a day for years in which Ypres was not shelled. The approach to it was sinister after one had left Poperinge and passed through the skeleton of Vlamartinge Church beyond the goldfish chateau. For a long time, Poperinga was the last link with a life in which men and women could move freely without hiding from the pursuit of death, and even there, from time to time, there were shells from long-range guns, and later, night birds dropping high-explosive eggs. 
Roundabout Puporinga, by Renningshelt and Locre, long convoys of motor-wagons taking up a new day's rations from the railheads raised clouds of dust which powdered the hedges white. Flemish cart-horses, with huge fringes of knotted string, wended their way between motor-lorries and gun-limbers. Often the sky was blue above the hop-gardens, with fleecy clouds over distant woodlands, and the gray old towers of Flemish churches and the windmills on Mont Rouge and Mont Nier, whose sails have turned through centuries of peace and strife. It all comes back to me as I write. That way to Ypres, and the sounds and the smells of the roads and the fields where the traffic of war went up, month after month, year after year. That day when I saw it first, after the gas attack, was strangely quiet, I remember. There was nothing doing, as our men used to say. The German gunners seemed asleep in the noonday sun, and it was a charming day for a stroll and a talk about the raving madness of war under every old hedge. "'What about lunch in Dickabush on the way up?' asked one of my companions. There were three of us. It seemed a good idea, and we walked toward the village, which then, they were early days, looked a peaceful spot, with a shimmer of sunshine above its gray thatch and red-tiled roofs. Suddenly one of us said, "'Good God!' An iron door had slammed down the quarters of the sky, and the hamlet into which we were going was blotted out by black smoke, which came up from its center as though its marketplace had opened up and vomited out infernal vapors. "'A big shell, that,' said one man, a tall, lean-limbed officer, who later in the war was sniper-in-chief of the British Army. Something enraged him at the sight of that shelled village. "'Damn them,' he said. "'Damn the war. Damn all dirty dogs who smash up life.'" Four times the thing happened and we were glad there had been a minute or so between us and Dickabush. In Dickabush, my young cobbler friend from Fleet Street was crouching low, expecting death. The peace of the day was spoiled. There was seldom a real peace on the way to Ypres. The German gunners had wakened up again. They always did. They were getting busy, those house-wreckers. The long rush of shells tore great holes through the air. Under a hedge, with our feet in the ditch, we ate the luncheon we had carried in our pockets. "'A silly idea,' said the lanky man, with a fierce and sad look in his eyes. He was a Norman-Irish, and a man of letters, and a crack shot, and all the boys he knew were being killed. "'What's silly?' I asked, wondering what particular foolishness he was thinking of in a world of folly. "'Silly to die with a broken bit of sandwich in one's mouth, just because some German fellow, some fat, stupid man a few miles away, looses off a bit of steel in search of the bodies of men with whom he has no personal acquaintance. "'Damn, silly,' I said. "'That's all there is to it in modern warfare,' said the lanky man. "'It's not like the old way of fighting, body to body, your strength against your enemies, your cunning against his. Now it is mechanics and chemistry. What is the splendor of courage, the glory of youth, when guns kill at fifteen miles?' Afterward this man went close to the enemy, devised tricks to make him show his head, and shot each head that showed. The guns ceased fire, their tumult died down, and all was quiet again. It was horribly quiet on our way into Ypres, across the railway, past the red brick asylum, where a cavalry hung unscathed on broken walls, past the gas tank at the crossroads. 
This silence was not reassuring, as our heels clicked over bits of broken brick on our way into Ypres. The enemy had been shelling heavily for three-quarters of an hour in the morning. There was no reason why he should not begin again. I remember now the intense silence of the Grand Place that day, after the gas attack, when we three men stood there looking up at the charred ruins of the cloth hall. It was a great solitude of ruin. No living figure stirred among the piles of masonry, which were tombstones above many dead. We three were like travelers, who had come to some capital of an old and buried civilization, staring with awe and uncanny fear at this burial place of ancient splendor, with broken traces of people who once had lived here in security. I looked up at the blue sky above those white ruins, and had an idea that death hovered there like a hawk, ready to pounce. Even as one of us, not I, spoke the thought, the signal came. It was a humming drone high up in the sky. Look out, said the lanky man, Germans! It was certain that two birds hovering over the Grand Place were hostile things, because suddenly white puffballs burst all around them, as the shrapnel of our own guns scattered about them, but they flew round steadily in a half-circle until they were poised above our heads. It was time to seek cover, which it was not easy to find just there, where masses of stonework were piled high. At any moment things might drop. I ducked my head behind a curtain of bricks as I heard a shrill, Cuee! from a shell. It burst close with a scatter, and a tin cup was flung against a bit of close wall to where the lanky man sat in a shell hole. He picked it up and said, Queer, and then smelled it and said, Queer, again. It was not an ordinary bomb. It had held some poisonous liquid from a German chemist's shop. Other bombs were dropping round as the two hostile airmen circled overhead, untouched still, by the following shell bursts. Then they passed toward their own lines, and my friend in the shell-hole called to me and said, Let's be going. It was time to go. When we reached the edge of town, our guns away back started shelling, and we knew the Germans would answer. So we sat in a field nearby to watch the bombardment. The air moved with the rushing waves which tracked the carry of each shell from our batteries, and over Ypres came the high sing-song of the enemy's answering voice. As the dusk fell, there was a movement out from Lamotinga, a movement of transport wagons and marching men. They were going up in the darkness through Ypres, rations and reliefs. They were the new army men of the West Riding. "'Carry on there,' said a young officer at the head of his company. Something in his eyes startled me. Was it fear or an act of sacrifice? I wondered if he would be killed that night. Men were killed most nights on the way through Ypres, sometimes a few and sometimes many. One shell killed thirty one night, and their bodies lay strewn, headless and limbless, at the corner of the Grand Place. Transport wagons galloped their way through, between bursts of shell-fire, hoping to dodge them, and sometimes not dodging them. I saw the litter of their wheels and shafts, and the bodies of the drivers, and the raw flesh of the dead horses that had not dodged them. Many men were buried alive in Ypres, under masses of masonry, when they had been sleeping in cellars, and were wakened by the avalanche above them. Comrades tried to dig them out, to pull away great stones, to get down to those vaults below which voices were calling, and while they worked other shells came and laid dead bodies above the stones which had entombed their living comrades. 
That happened not once or twice, but many times in Ypres. There was a town major of Ypres. Men said it was the sentence of death to any officer appointed to that job. I think one of them I met had had eleven predecessors. He sat in a cellar of the old prison, with walls of sandbags on each side of him, but he could not sit there very long at a stretch, because it was his duty to regulate the traffic according to the shell-fire. He kept a visitor's book as a hobby, until it was buried under piles of prison, and was a hearty, cheerful soul, in spite of the menace of death always about him. CHAPTER Eight. My memory goes back to a strange night in Ypres in those early days. It was Gullet, the Australian eyewitness, afterward in Palestine, who had the idea. It would be a great adventure, he said, as we stood listening to the gunfire over there. It would be damn silly, said the staff officer. Only a stern sense of duty would make me do it. It was Gullet who was the brave man. We took a bottle of Contreau and a sweet cake as a gift to any battalion mess we might find in the ramparts, and were sorry for ourselves when we failed to find it, nor for a long time any living soul. Our own footsteps were the noisiest sounds as we stumbled over the broken stones. No other footstep paced down any of those streets of the shattered houses through which we wandered with tightened nerves. There was no movement among all those rubbish heaps of fallen masonry and twisted iron. We were in the loneliness of a sepulchre, which had been once a fair city. For a little while my friend and I stood in the Grand Place, not speaking. In the deepening twilight, beneath the last flame-feathers of the sinking sun, and the first stars that glimmered in a pale sky, the frightful beauty of the ruins put a spell upon us. The tower of the cathedral rose high above the framework of broken arches and single pillars, like a white rock which had been split from end to end by a thunderbolt. A recent shell had torn out a slice so that the top of the tower was supported only upon broken buttresses, and the great pile was hollowed out like a decayed tooth. The cloth hall was but a skeleton in stone, with immense gaunt ribs about the dead carcass of its former majesty. Beyond, the tower of St. Mark's was a stark ruin, which gleamed white through the darkening twilight. We felt as men who should stand gazing upon the ruins of Westminster Abbey, while the shadows of night crept into their dark caverns and into their yawning chasms of chaotic masonry, with a gleam of moon upon their riven towers, and fingers of pale light touching the ribs of isolated arches. In the spaciousness of the Grand Place at Ypres, my friend and I stood like the last men on earth in a city of buried life. It was almost dark now as we made our way through other streets of rubbish heaps. Strangely enough, as I remember, many of the iron lampposts had been left standing, though bent and twisted in a drunken way, and here and there we caught the sweet whiff of flowers and plants still growing in gardens which had not been utterly destroyed by the daily tempest of shells though the houses about them had been all wrecked. The woods below the ramparts were slashed and torn by these storms, and in the darkness, lighted faintly by the crescent moon, we stumbled over broken branches and innumerable shell-holes. The silence was broken now by a roar of a gun, which sounded so loud that I jumped sideways with a sudden shock of it. It seemed to be the signal for our batteries, and shell after shell went rushing through the night, 
with that long menacing hiss which ends in a dull blast the reports of the guns and the explosions of the shells followed each other and mingled in an enormous tumult echoed back by the ruins of ypres in hollow reverberating thunderstrokes the enemy was answering back not very fiercely yet and from the center of town in or about the grand place came the noise of falling houses or of huge blocks of stone splitting into fragments we groped along scared with the sense of death around us the first flares of the night were being lighted by both sides above their trenches on each side of the salient the balls of light rose into the velvety darkness and a moment later suffused the sky with a white glare which faded away tremulously after half a minute against the first vivid brightness of it the lines of trees along the roads to hooge were silhouetted as black as ink and the fields between ypres and the trenches were flooded with a milky illuminance the whole shape of the salient was revealed to us in those flashes we could see all those places for which our soldiers fought and died we stared across the fields beyond the minion road toward the hooge crater and those trenches which were battered to pieces but not abandoned in the first battle of ypres and the second battle that salient was even then in 1915 a graveyard of british soldiers there were years to follow when many more would lie there and as between flash and flash the scene was revealed i seemed to see a great army of ghosts the spirits of all those boys who had died on this ground it was the darkness and the tumult of guns and our loneliness here on the ramparts which put an edge on my nerves and made me see unnatural things no wonder a sentry was startled when he saw our two figures approaching him through a clump of trees his words rang out like pistol shots halt who goes there friends we shouted seeing the gleam of light on a shaking bayonet come close to be recognized he said and his voice was harsh we went close and i for one was afraid young sentries sometimes shot too soon who are you he asked in a more natural voice and when we explained he laughed gruffly i never saw two strangers pass this way before he was an old soldier back to the army again with kitchener's men he had been in the chitral campaign in south africa little wars compared to this as he said a fine simple man and although a bricklayer's laborer in private life with the knowledge of the right word i was struck when he said that the german flares were more luminous than ours i could hardly see his face in the darkness except when he struck a match once but his figure was black against the illumined sky and i watched the motion of his arm as he pointed to the roads up which his comrades had gone to the support of another battalion at hooge who were hard pressed they went along under a lot of shrapnel and had many casualties he told the story of that night in a quiet thoughtful way with phrases of almost biblical beauty in their simple truth and the soul of the man the spirit of the whole army in which he was a private soldier was revealed when he flashed out a sentence with his one note of fire but the enemy lost more than we did sir that night we wandered away again into the darkness with the din of the bombardment all about us there was not a square yard of ground unploughed by shells and we did not nourish any false illusions as to finding a safe spot for a bivouac there was no spot within the ramparts of ypres where a man might say no shells will fall here but one place we found where there seemed some reasonable odds of safety 
There also, if sleep assailed us, we might curl up in an abandoned dugout and hope that it would not be crumped before the dawn. There were several of these shelters there, but peering into them by the light of a match, I shuddered at the idea of lying in one of them. They had been long out of use, and there was a foul look about the damp bedding and rugs which had been left to rot there. They were inhabited already by half-wild cats, the abandoned cats of Ypres, which hunted mice through the ruins of their old houses, and they spat at me and glared with green-eyed fear as I thrust a match into their lairs. There were two kitchen chairs, with a deal table on which we put our cake and contro, and here, through half a night, my friend and I sat watching and listening to that weird scene upon which the old moon looked down and as two men will at such a time, we talked over all the problems of life and death and the meaning of man's heritage. Another sentry challenged us. All his nerves jangled at our apparition. He was a young fellow, one of Kitchener's crowd, and told us frankly that he had the jim-jams in his solitude of Ypres, and saw Germans every time a rat jumped. He lingered near us, for company. It was becoming chilly, the dew made our clothes damp. Cake and sweet liquor were poor provisions for the night, and the thought of hot tea was infinitely seductive. Perhaps somewhere one might find a few soldiers round a kettle in some friendly dugout. We groped our way along, holding our breath at times as a shell came sweeping overhead or burst with a sputter of steel against the ramparts. It was profoundly dark, so that only the glow-worms glittered like jewels on black velvet. The moon had gone down, and inside Ypres the light of the distant flares only glimmered faintly above the broken walls. In a tunnel of darkness voices were speaking, and someone was whistling softly, and a gleam of red light made a bar across the grass. We walked toward a group of black figures, suddenly silent in our approach, obviously startled. "'Who's there?' said a voice. We were just in time for tea, a stroke of luck, with a company of boys all Kitchener lads from the civil service, who were spending the night here. They had made a fire behind a screen to give them a little comfort and frighten off the ghosts, and gossiped with a queer sense of humor, cynical and blasphemous. But even through their jokes there was a yearning for the end of a business which was too close to death. I remember the gist of their conversation, which was partly devised for my benefit. One boy declared that he was sick of the whole business, I should like to cancel my contract, he remarked. Yes, send in your resignation, old lad, said another, with ironical laughter. They'd consider it, wouldn't they? Perhaps offer a rise in wages? I don't think. Another boy said, I am the citizen of no mean empire, but what the hell is the empire going to do for me when the next shell blows off both my bleeding legs? This remark was also received by a gust of subdued laughter, silenced for a moment by a roar of upheaval of masonry somewhere by the ruins of the cloth hall. "'Soldiers are prisoners,' said a boy, without a trace of humor. "'You're lagged and you can't escape. A blighty is the best luck you can hope for.' "'I don't want to kill Germans,' said a fellow with a superior accent. "'I've no personal quarrel against them, and anyhow I don't like butcher's work.' "'Christian service. That's what the padre calls it.' I wonder if Christ would have stuck a bayonet into a German's stomach, a German with his hands up. That's what we're asked to do. Oh, Christianity is out of the business, my child. Why mention it? 
This is war, and we're back to the primitive state. B.C. All the same, I say my little prayers when I'm in a blue funk. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. This last remark was the prize joke of the evening, received with much hilarity, not too loud for fear of drawing fire, though really no Germans could have heard any laughter in Ypres. Nearby, their officer was spending the night. We called on him and found him sitting alone in a dugout, furnished by odd bits from the wrecked houses, with waxen flowers and a glass case on a shelf, and an old cottage clock which ticked out the night, and a velvet armchair which had been the pride of a Flemish home. He was a Devonshire lad, with a pale, thoughtful face, and I was sorry for him in his loneliness, with a roof over his head, which would be no proof against a fair-sized shell. He expressed no surprise at seeing us. I think he would not have been surprised if the ghost of Edward the Black Prince had called on him. He would have greeted him with the same politeness and offered him his green armchair. The night passed. The gun slackened down before the dawn. For a little while there was almost silence, even over the trenches. But as the first faint glow of dawn crept through the darkness, the rifle fire burst out again feverishly, and the machine guns clucked with new spasms of ferocity. The boys of the new army, and the Germans facing them, had an attack of the nerves, as always at that hour. The flares were still rising, but had the debauched look of belated fireworks after a night of orgy. In a distant field, a cock crew. The dawn lightened all the sky and the shadows crept away from the ruins of Ypres, and all the ghastly wreckage of the city was revealed again nakedly. Then the guns ceased for a while, and there was quietude in the trenches, and out of Ypres, sneaking by sideways, went two tired figures, patting the hoof with a slouching swiftness to escape the early morning hate, which was sure to come as soon as a clock in Vlamertinge, still working in a ruined tower, chimed the hour of six. I went through Ypres scores of times afterward, and during the battles of Flanders saw it day by day as columns of men and guns and pack mules and transports went up toward the ridge, which led at last to Pachendale. We had big guns in the ruins of Ypres, and roundabout, and they fired with violent concussions which shook loose stones, and their flashes were red through the Flanders mist. Always this capital of the battlefields was sinister with a sense of menace about it. Steel helmets to be worn, gas masks at the alert. So said the traffic man at the crossroads. As one strapped on one's steel helmet and shortened the strap of one's gas mask, the spirit of Ypres touched one's soul icily. Chapter 9 The worst school of war for the sons of gentlemen was, in those early days, and for long afterward, Hooge. That was the devil's playground, and his chamber of horrors, wherein he devised merry tortures for young Christian men. It was not far out of Ypres, to the left of the Menin Road, and to the north of the Zouave Wood and the Sanctuary Wood. For a time there was a chateau there called the White Chateau, with excellent stables and good accommodation for one of our brigade staffs, until one of our generals was killed and others wounded by a shell which broke up their conference. Afterward, there was no chateau, 
but only a rubble of bricks banked up with sandbags and deep mine craters filled with snicking water slopping over from the belvoir de lake and low-lying pools bodies and bits of bodies and clots of blood and green metallic-looking slime made by explosive gases were floating on the surface of that water below the crater banks when i first passed that way and so it was always our men lived there and died there within a few yards of the enemy crouched below the sandbags and burrowed in the sides of the crater lice crawled over them in legions human flesh rotting and stinking mere pulp was pasted into the mud banks if they dug to get deeper cover their shovels went into the softness of dead bodies who had been their comrades scraps of flesh booted legs blackened hands eyeless heads came falling over them when the enemy trench mortared their position or blew up a mine shaft i remember one young irish officer who came down to our quarters on a brief respite from commanding the garrison at hooge he was a handsome fellow like young philip of spain by velasquez and he had a profound melancholy in his eyes in spite of a charming smile do you mind if i have a bath before i join you he asked he walked about in the open air until the bath was ready even there a strong fetid smell came from him who she said in a thoughtful way is not a healthy resort he was more cheerful after his bath and did not feel quite such a leper he told one or two stories about the things that happened at hooge and i wondered if hell could be so bad after a short stay he went back again and i could see that he expected to be killed before saying good-bye he touched some flowers on the mess-table and for a moment or two listened to birds twittering in the trees thanks very much he said i've enjoyed this visit a good deal good-bye he went back through ypres on the way to hooge and the mine crater where his irish soldiers were lying in slime in which vermin crawled sometimes it was the enemy who mined under our position blowing a few men to bits and scattering the sandbags sometimes it was our own men who upheaved the earth beyond them by mine charges and rushed the new crater it was in july of fifteen that the devils of hooge became merry and bright with increased activity the germans had taken possession of one of the mine craters which formed the apex of a triangle across the menin road with trenches running down to it on either side so that it was like the spearhead of their position they had fortified it with sandbags and crammed it with machine-guns which could sweep the ground on three sides so making a direct attack by infantry a suicidal enterprise our trenches immediately faced this stronghold from the other side of a road at right angles with the menin road and our men the new army boys were shelled day and night so that many of them were torn to pieces and others buried alive and others sent mad by shell-shock they were learning their lessons in the school of courage it was decided by a conference of generals not at hooge to clear out this hornet's nest and the job was given to the sappers who mined under the roadway toward the redoubt while our heavy artillery shelled the enemy's position all around the neighborhood on july twenty second the mine was exploded while our men crouched low horribly afraid after hours of suspense the earth was rent asunder by a gust of flame and vomited up a tumult of soil and stones and human limbs and bodies 
our men still crouched while these things fell upon them i thought i had been blown to bits one of them told me i was a quaking fear with my head in the earth i kept saying christ christ when the earth and smoke had settled again it was seen that the enemy's redoubt had ceased to exist in its place where there had been a criss-cross of trenches and sandbag shelters for their machine-guns and a network of barbed wire there was now an enormous crater hollowed deep with shelving sides surrounded by tumbled earth heaps which had blocked up the enemy's trenches on either side of the position so that they could not rush into the cavern and take possession it was our men who rushed the crater and lay there panting in its smoking soil our generals had asked for trouble when they destroyed that redoubt and our men had it infuriated by a massacre of their garrison in the mine explosion and by the loss of their spearhead the germans kept up a furious bombardment of our trenches in that neighborhood in bursts of gunfire which tossed our earthworks about and killed and wounded many men our line at hooge at that time was held by the king's royal rifles of the fourteenth division young fellows not far advanced in the training school of war they held on under the gunning of their positions and each man among them wondered whether it was the shell screeching overhead or the next which would smash him into pulp like those bodies lying nearby in dugouts and upheaved earthworks on the morning of july thirtieth there was a strange lull of silence after a heavy bout of shells and mortars men of the k r r raised their heads above broken parapets and crawled out of shell holes and looked about there were many dead bodies lying around and wounded men were wailing the unwounded startled by the silence became aware of some moisture falling on them thick oily drops of liquid what in hell's name said a subaltern one man smelled his clothes which reeked of something like paraffin coming across from the german trenches were men hunched up under some heavy weights they were carrying cylinders with nozzles like hose pipes suddenly there was a rushing noise like an escape of air from some blast furnace long tongues of flame licked across the broken ground where the king's royal rifles lay some of them were set on fire their clothes burning on them making them living torches and in a second or two cinders it was a new horror of war the flammenwerfer some of the men leaped to their feet cursing and fired repeatedly at the germans carrying the flaming jets here and there the shots were true a man hunched under his cylinder exploded like a fat moth caught in a candle flame but that advancing line of fire after the long bombardment was too much for the rank and file whose clothes were smoking and whose bodies were scorched in something like a panic they fell back abandoning the cratered ground in which their dead lay the news of this disaster and of the new horror reached the troops in reserve who had been resting in the rear after a long spell they moved up at once to support their comrades and make a counter-attack ground they had to cover was swept by machine-guns and they fell but others attacked again and again regardless of their losses and won back part of the lost ground leaving only a depth of five hundred yards in the enemy's hands so the position remained until the morning of august ninth when a new attack was begun by the durham yorkshire lancashire and midland troops of the sixth division who had been long in the salient and had proved the quality of northern grit 
in the foul places and the foul weather of that region. It was late on the night of August 8th that these battalions took up their position, ready for the assault. These men, who came mostly from mines and workshops, were hard and steady and did not show any outward sign of nervousness, though they knew well enough that before the light of another day came, their numbers would have passed through the lottery of this game of death. Each man's life depended on no more than a fluke of luck by the throw of those dice which explode as they fall. They knew what their job was. It was to cross five hundred yards of open ground to capture and hold a certain part of the German position near the Chateau of Hooge. They were in the apex of the triangle which made a German salient after the ground was lost on July 30th. On the left side of the triangle was Zouave Wood, and Sanctuary Wood ran up the right side to a strong fort held by the enemy and crammed with machine guns and every kind of bomb. The base of the upturned triangle was made by the Menin Road to the north, beyond which lay the crater, the chateau, and the stables. The way that lay between the regiment and their goal was not an easy one to pass. It was cut and cross-cut by our old trenches, now held by the enemy, who had made tangles of barbed wire in front of their parapets and had placed machine-guns at various points. The ground was littered with dead bodies belonging to the Battle of July 30th and pockmarked by deep shell-holes. To cross five hundred yards of such ground in the storm of the enemy's fire would be an ordeal greater than that of rushing from one trench to another. It would have to be done in regular attack formation, and with the best of luck would be a grim and costly progress. The night was pitch dark. The men drawn up could only see one another as shadows blacker than the night. They were very quiet. Each man was fighting down his fear in his soul, trying to get a grip on nerves hideously strained by the rack of this suspense. The words, steady lads, were spoken down the ranks by young lieutenants and sergeants, the sounds of men whispering, a cough here and there, a word of command, the clink of bayonets, the cracking of twigs under heavy boots, the shuffle of troops getting into line, would not carry with any loudness to German ears. The men deployed before dawn broke, waiting for the preliminary bombardment which would smash away for them. The officers struck matches now and then to glance at their wristwatches, set very carefully to those of the gunners. Then our artillery burst forth with an enormous violence of shell-fire, so that the night was shattered with the tumult of it. Guns of every caliber mingled their explosions, and the long screech of the shells rushed through the air as those thousands of engines were chasing one another madly through a vast junction in that black vault. The men listened and waited. As soon as the guns lengthened their fuses, the infantry advance would begin. Their nerves were getting jangled. It was just the torture of human animals. There was an indrawing of breath, when suddenly the enemy began to fire rockets, sending up flares which made white waves of light, if they were seen there would be a shambles. But the smoke of all the bursting shells rolled up in a thick veil, hiding those mining lads who stared toward the illuminations above the black vapors and at the flashes which seemed to stab great rents in this pall of smoke. It was a jumpy moment, said the colonel of the Durhams, and the moment lengthened into minutes. Then the time came. The watch-hands pointed to the second, which had been given for the assault to begin, 
and instantly to the tick the guns lifted and made a curtain of fire around the chateau of hooge beyond the minion road six hundred yards away time the company officers blew their whistles and there was a sudden clatter from trench spades slung to rifle barrels and from men girdled with hand grenades as the advancing companies deployed and made their first rush forward the ground had been churned up by our shells and the trenches had been battered into shapelessness strewn with broken wire and heaps of loose stones and fragments of steel it seemed impossible that any german should be left alive in this quagmire but there was still a rattle of machine-guns from holes and hillocks not for long the bombing parties searched and found them and silenced them from the heaps of earth which had once been trenches german soldiers rose and staggered in a dazed drunken way stupefied by the bombardment beneath which they had crouched our men spitted them on their bayonets or hurled hand grenades and swept the ground before them some germans screeched like pigs in a slaughterhouse the men went on in short rushes they were across the menin road now and were first to the crater though other troops were advancing quickly from the left they went down into the crater shouting hoarsely and hurling bombs at germans who were caught like rats in a trap and scurried up the steep walls beyond firing before rolling down again until at least two hundred bodies lay dead at the bottom of this pit of hell while some of the men dug themselves into the crater or held the dugouts already made by the enemy others climbed up to the ridge beyond and with the final rush almost winded and spent reached the extreme limit of their line of assault and achieved the task which had been set them they were mad now not human in their senses they saw red through bloodshot eyes they were beasts of prey these decent yorkshire lads Round the stables themselves three hundred Germans were bayoneted, until not a single enemy lived on this ground, and the light of day on that ninth of August revealed a bloody and terrible scene not decent for words to tell. Not decent, but a shambles of human flesh, which had been a panic-stricken crowd of living men crying for mercy, with that dreadful screech of terror from German boys who saw the white gleam of steel at their stomachs before they were spitted not many of those durham and yorkshire lads remain alive now with that memory the few who do must have thrust it out of their vision unless at night it haunts them the assaulting battalion had lost many men during the assault but their main ordeal came after the first advance when the german guns belched out a large quantity of heavy shells from the direction of hill sixty they raked the ground and tried to make our men yield the position they had gained but they would not go back or crawl away from their dead all through the day the bombardment continued answered from our side by fourteen hours of concentrated fire which i watched from our battery positions in spite of the difficulties of getting up supplies through the crumped trenches the men held on and consolidated their positions one of the most astounding feats was done by the sappers who put up barbed wire beyond the line under a devilish cannonade a telephone operator had had his apparatus smashed by a shell early in the action and worked his way back to get another he succeeded in reaching the advanced line again but another shell knocked out his second instrument it was then only possible to keep in touch with the battalion headquarters by means of messengers and again and again officers and men made their way across the zone of fire or died in the attempt 
Messages reached the colonel of the regiment that part of his front trenches had been blown away. From other parts of the line reports came in that the enemy was preparing a counterattack. For several hours now the colonel of the Durhams could not get into touch with his companies, isolated and hidden beneath the smoke of the shell-bursts. Flag-wagging and heliographing were out of the question. He could not tell even if a single man remained alive out there beneath all those shells. No word came from them now to let him know if the enemy were counter-attacking. Early in the afternoon he decided to go out and make his own reconnaissance. The bombardment was still relentless, and it was only possible to go part of the way in an old communication trench. The ground about was littered with the dead, still being blown about by high explosives. The soul of the colonel was heavy then with doubt, and with the knowledge that most of the dead were his own. When he told me this adventure, his only comment was the soldier's phrase. It was not what might be called a healthy place. He could see no sign of a counterattack, but straining through the smoke clouds, his eyes could detect no sign of life where his men had been holding the captured lines. Were they all dead out there? On Monday night the colonel was told that his battalion would be relieved, and managed to send this order to part of it. It was sent through by various routes, but some men who carried it came back with the news that it was still impossible to get in touch with the companies holding the advanced positions above the Menin Road. In trying to do so, they had had astounding escapes. Several of them had been blown as far as ten yards by the air pressure of exploding shells, and had been buried in the scatter of earth. When at last my men came back, those of them who had received the order, said the colonel, I knew the price of their achievement, its cost in officers and men. He spoke as a man resentful of that bloody sacrifice. There were other men still alive and still holding on. With some of them were four young officers who clung to their ground all through the next night before being relieved. They were without a drop of water and suffered the extreme miseries of the battlefield. There was no distinction in courage between those four men, but the greater share of suffering was borne by one. Early in the day he had had his jaw broken by a piece of shell, but still led his men. Later in the day he was wounded in the shoulder and leg, but kept his command, and he was still leading the survivors of his company when he came back on the morning of Tuesday, August 10th. Another party of men had even a longer time of trial. They were under the command of a lance corporal, who had gained possession of the stables above the Menin Road, and now defended their ruins. During the previous twenty-four hours he had managed to send through several messages, but they were not to report his exposed position, nor to ask for supports, nor to request relief. What he said each time was, Send us more bombs. It was only at 7.30 in the morning of Tuesday, after thirty hours, under shell-fire, that the survivors came away from their rubbish-heap in the lines of death. So it was at Hooge on that day of August. I talked with these men, touched hands with them while the mud and blood of business still fouled them. Even now, in remembrance, I wonder how men could go through such hours without having on their faces more traces of their hell though some of them were still shaking with a kind of ague. End of section 5